This is 911. Do you have an emergency? Um, I just ran away from home. Do you know what street you're on? Um, no. Uh, I just ran away from home because I live in a family of 15, okay? Can you hear me? And we have abusing parents. Did you hear that? Okay, how did they abuse you? Okay. They hit us, they throw us across, they like throw us across the room. They pull our hair, they, they yank out our hair. I have two, my two little sisters right now are chained up. Okay, how old are you? I'm 17. What's your name? Golden Turpin. Okay, I'm gonna connect you to the service department so that they can help what? One moment, don't hang up. I won't. Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, The Brave 13, The Turpin Children's Courageous Escape. Please be aware that this case involves distressing details and viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. It was January 14th, 2018, just before 6 o'clock a.m., when 17-year-old Jordan Turpin made a daring escape from her family's home. She leapt out of her bedroom window and ran as fast as she could, determined to get away before anyone could notice she was gone. Using a phone that could not make outgoing calls, she dialed 911 as her fingers shook and bravely waited for law enforcement to arrive, afraid of being caught. Little did she know that her actions would lead to the discovery of a house of horrors, where her 12 siblings were being subjected to unimaginable abuse, one of the most shocking cases of child abuse in the history of the United States. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, and the United States, violence against children is a serious human rights and public health problem that has devastating and costly consequences. Its destructive effects harm children in every country, impacting families, communities, and nations, and reaching across generations. Here's some of their key findings. 50% of children in Asia, Africa, and North America experienced past-year violence. The number of 2- to 17-year-olds who experienced the most severe forms of violence in the past year is estimated to be at least 64% of children in Asia, 50% in North America, 50% in Africa, 34% in Latin America, 
and 12% in Europe. More than half of all children in the world, 2 to 17 years old, experience violence every year. More than 600,000 children are abused in the U.S. each year. One in 40 infants under one years old are victimized by an abuser every year and make up 15% of all child abuse victims. American Indian or Alaska Native children have the highest rate of victimization at 15.5, African American at 13.2, more than 75% were neglected, 16% were physically abused, 9% sexually abused, 0.2% trafficked. In substantiated cases, 77% of children were victimized by a parent. It was 5 a.m. on an early Sunday morning. Jordan Turpin was wide awake. She was terrified and she could feel her entire body trembling in fear. She had spent the last two years developing an incredible escape plan with her older sister, Jennifer. If you guess she was planning to escape a kidnapping or an abduction, you'd be completely wrong. Jordan, along with her 12 other siblings, were being held by their very own parents. For almost 30 years, David and Louise Turpin had systematically tortured, neglected, and abused their 13 children to a point where they were underdeveloped, malnourished, and uneducated. The smell of raw and excrement filled the small house. The home was barely over 2,000 square feet, but was covered in trash and garbage. The 13 children shared two small bathrooms where they were allowed to shower once annually and could wash their hands, only to the wrist. Anything beyond that was considered playing with the water and punishable by being chained to the bed. Tonight, in the quiet of the house, two of her sisters were crying. One child had been chained for stealing mother's candy and another for calling her mother the devil saying she was worse than the devil. One of Jordan's three brothers was also chained and had been for several weeks. His crime was the stealing of food. All the children were in a state of starvation. Jennifer had tried to run away when the family lived in Texas. She may have been somewhere around Jordan's age at that time, but the plot had failed. She had been unceremoniously returned to the horror that was her home. She had heard talk between their mother and father about the family moving again. They would be moving to Oklahoma in the morning. They had already announced that everyone was getting chained for the move. Jennifer knew that this new development would ruin their two years of planning. Something had to be done now. Jennifer tore a page out of one of her journals and drew a quick, rudimentary map from memory. She hadn't spent much time outside of the house, but she drew what she could remember. Jordan and another sister made a call to a taxi company on the cell phone they had secreted away to see what it would cost to be taken to Nevada. Jordan could hear the crying of her two sisters who had been chained up. She recalled a television show called Cops and her plan pivoted. She would go out and call 911 and alert the police to the abuse. She would find a way to convince them to help her. Jennifer reminded her to take pictures of her sisters chained up for proof, and so Jordan quietly asked the two sisters if she could take pictures of them. They quickly agreed, and Jordan snapped a few photos. She put a few pillows in the bed to make it look as if she were asleep and changed into clean clothes. Jordan climbed up on the windowsill and dropped down. Her heart was pounding in her chest. The cold January air was chilling even through the clothes she wore, but she didn't feel the cold. She began walking north and then circled back and walked south toward a dead end. She didn't know the way out of the neighborhood. 
The small map her sister gave her was scrunched in her small hands. Another sister climbs out and drops down and runs to catch up with Jordan, not knowing that she had gone the opposite direction. Not finding her, she returns home afraid and confused. Jordan struggles to dial 911, her hands trembling from fear. She stands in the street not knowing she could be walking on the sidewalk and that she shouldn't be standing in the road. Up to that point, the kids had gone through a crazy amount of abuse. And obviously they were to the point where they felt they needed to escape and find some type of rescue. I find it very interesting that they were getting ready to move again. And it makes you wonder why, why they were getting ready to move again, because they had made several moves throughout the years, up and leading up into that point. Yeah. The fact that the kids saw that as their last chance to escape, I feel like that really speaks to the amount of conditioning that they had been through, because they have had opportunities to escape in the past. They just didn't do it. They weren't pushed to that point where they felt they needed to. I know Jordan, in one of her interviews, she said something about not feeling like some of the kids would not have survived the trip because they would all be chained up to make that trip to Oklahoma. Also, going to Oklahoma may have put them in a more isolated area, making it even harder to escape. Right. And the kids were, they ranged in age from the youngest was two and the oldest was 29 years old. So Jennifer, who Alicia was just talking about, was actually 29 years old. Yeah. Wow. It's incredible the strength and the courage that it takes to climb out of a window and run to a, a world that you don't know nothing about. Either you ever jumped out of a window and like tried to run away? I jumped out of a window. I didn't Did try you? to run away, but no. <laughs> I was sneaking out. What? Same. What? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> when when you stuck out of your house, tell, tell me about that. I want to hear about that. <laughs> what happened? I threw my shoes out so my parents couldn't hear me because we had wood floors. So I thought by throwing my shoes out, they wouldn't hear me shuffling to get out of the window yeah and by the time i got out and went to pick my shoes up my dog had chewed the shoes so i had, really? teeth, yeah, oh I had, my God. I had teeth holes in the shoes took you that long to climb out the window he was quick man i guess he was hungry <laughs> maybe my shoes were sweet i don't know um i saw i can't remember which video i saw it in but i saw a video talking about how Jordan, the girl who ran out the window and stuff and called the police, that she had been using, or she would sneak her brother's phone or one of his old phones and she would go into the bathroom and she would watch Justin Bieber videos and then she would take videos of herself singing and post them online and that somebody started messaging her, it was a guy, and he was asking like why it was always night whenever she was singing and it was all dark and like gross looking and she would tell him and she told him about everything and that he told her that she should call the police and then that's when she started to like realize that like there was a way to get out and that the outside world wasn't the way she thought it was. Yeah. And what's crazy is that it took somebody online to tell her that when there were so many different neighbors through the years that I feel like really failed them. Yeah, you say that, but um but I think that they were not exposed to a lot and they were being fed a narrative. I think their narrative was like it was dangerous outside. You'd be taken away from your family. You'd be hurt. You'd be, it'd be worse. Separated and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure they had, there was a, a huge bond between all the brothers and sisters. I know at one point, and we'll talk about this more, 
uh, later on when we talk about the offenders. But at one point, they all lived together and, you know, taking care of each other, basically, all going through the same thing together. Like, you know, so I feel like they were really closely bonded. And the fear of being separated from your siblings was greater than the fear of what was happening in the house, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just imagine what the police was was thinking when she ran up to him and was like talking to her. Cause I, I heard the video. I heard the, um, we could hear in the video that she sounds very, she almost sounds handicapped. Yeah. You know? And he asked her, are you on medication? And she's like, I don't know what medication is. Yeah. <laughs> What's medication? <laughs> yeah. She also sounded a lot younger than she yeah, was. She really did. She didn't, she definitely didn't sound. And I'm sure she didn't look like a 17 year old would look. Alicia's 17. <laughs> and she can hold a conversation with a police officer that's that's intelligent. So just to think that it would be more like a nine-year-old talking to a police officer, which is, I'm sure that cop was looking at her like, uh, what are you doing outside at night? And like, yeah. uh, so I, I feel like it was probably very difficult for him to really get an understanding of what was going on. Yeah, you for know? sure. I know one of the things that he had said was that when, when he got the call, he said he was getting ready to get off work and he thought it was going to be a quick call. You know, maybe a kid was just trying to run away. Maybe it was the, the story was maybe inflated a bit, but um, he was just completely shocked, especially yeah. once she showed him the pictures. Yeah, no, for sure. It was 1985, and Louise was a 16-year-old choir singer when she began dating David Turpin. David was six years older than Louise, and he was smitten by her. Their families had been close for years. David was a shy nerd who was smart and studious. Louise's father did not approve of the relationship at first, but her mother allowed her to see David and helped her hide it from her dad. That same year, David would wear a disguise to sign Louise out of school, and they eloped in the Princeton, Virginia area, running away to Fort Worth. Louise's father became infuriated when they ran away together and he forced him to return back to Parisburg, Virginia. The couple were married and they lived happily in Princeton, Virginia for several years until the birth of their first child in 1988. They named their first daughter Jennifer Dawn Turpin and she was Louise's pride and joy. The couple would relocate to Fort Worth eventually uh, within a year of her birth. David had finished his degree in computer engineering and he quickly got a good job with Lockheed Martin with a very good salary. On February 3rd, 1992, Louise would have her second child and her first son, Joshua David Turpin. Jennifer was four years old at the time. On November 3rd, 1993, Louise would give birth to her third child, Jessica Louise Turpin. In 1994, Jennifer started kindergarten. It is unknown if her home life was normal and well-kept. The next year, on December 17th, 1995, Louise would give birth to her fourth child and their second son, Jonathan Wayne Turpin. It was around this time that Jennifer's home life began impacting her socially. She was having a hard time making friends at school because she smelled and looked unkempt. She used candy wrappers to keep her ponytail in place. The kids called her names like Skinny Bones and Stinky and avoided her. In 1996, Louise's sister, Elizabeth, asked to come stay with the Turpins for the summer while she was in college, and they agreed, and so she came to live with them. She envisioned an amazing experience but soon found it stifling and uncomfortable. When Elizabeth arrived, the house was extremely messy, unkempt, and had a terrible odor. Elizabeth saw that Louise would leave Jonathan in the playpen crying for hours, and he was never picked up. When she tried to pick him up, she got admonished. She did not want anyone picking up the baby. The adults ate dinner together, but the three children were called down by name, one at a time, each eating in silence and then going back upstairs to their room. She found it odd, but she didn't see it as abusive. The Turpins imposed strict rules on Elizabeth. 
They forbid her from dating. They forbid her from giving anyone their address or their telephone number. They forbid her from anything that was fun. The summer was not turning out like she had expected. During this period, David and Louise would often have inappropriate conversations with Elizabeth with sexual innuendos and statements like, I bet she's good in bed, which Louise seemed to encourage. There were instances of inappropriate encounters, such as a time when David and Louise picked the lock to the bathroom while Elizabeth was in the shower. Elizabeth described the horror of being leered at while they laughed. This was not what she expected at all. The following year, on May 21st, 1997, Louise gave birth to her fifth child, Joy Donna Turpin. This would be the same year that she pulled Jennifer out of school. She told the family that she intended to homeschool the kids to protect them from the bullying that Jennifer was experiencing at school. It is possible that a teacher may have reached out to the Turpins to discuss the child's hygiene and not wanting to draw any additional attention to their situation, they chose the safer option of homeschooling. In 1998, on the 15th day of June, the sixth Turpin child was born, Julianne Phyllis Turpin. The following year, the Turpins moved to Rio Vista, Texas, and they had their seventh child, Janetta Beatty Turpin. She was born on the 27th of July, 1999. In 2000, the Turpins had their eighth child on November 15th or the 16th. This baby was Jordan Elizabeth Turpin. In 2002, on January 21st, the Turpins would have their ninth child and their third son, James Turpin. Then the following year, on April 25th, 2003, they would have their 10th child, Joanna Turpin. In 2005, the 11th Turpin child was born, Jolinda Turpin, and in 2006, the 12th child, Julissa Turpin, was born. From 1999 to 2007, the Turpins would effectively hide the deplorable conditions that the children lived in. A short-lived friendship with neighbors came to an abrupt end when they began asking too many questions. The neighbors would later describe the property as quiet. The house would be lit up all night. They would see shiny new bikes outside that would go unridden and untouched by the children. During this time, Jennifer Turpin found the will to run away hitchhiking into town and looking for a job, and she even tried to get an apartment. She would return home after just one day, worried about her siblings and what would become of them. In 2007, the Turpins took 10 of their 12 children to a trailer on their large, isolated property and kept the two youngest, Jolinda and Julissa, and they drove away. They brought them groceries every week, but not enough to keep them fed. Jordan was six at the time and remembers eating ketchup and ice and being in a constant state of starvation. It is likely the trailer was locked from the outside to prevent them from escaping or getting out to look for help. In 2008, Elizabeth Jane Robinette Flores, Louise's sister, claims that she saw her sister frequently in Texas since they lived a few hours apart, but only at Elizabeth's house mostly because she would only allow her in the driveway and not allow her into their home. It is believed that the children remained living in the trailer until 2010, until the family moved them all to Marietta, California. The neighbors recall seeing the abandoned home in complete filth with dead cats, excrement, and trash throughout the home. They found rope tied to the beds and strange scratches on the doors. They failed to alert authorities. In 2010, the Turpin family moved to a five-bedroom, four-bath house in St. Honor Drive in Marietta, California. This would be David's last year with Northrop Grumman. At the time, he worked as a software engineer making $140,000 a year. In April, their double-wide motorhome was repossessed despite the royalties received on their land for $10,000 that year. In 2011, while living in Marietta, California, David filed bankruptcy. It is estimated that he was between $100,000 to $500,000 in debt at the time. Almost $90,000 of that was due to credit card debt. They would live in Marietta from 2010 to 2014. David and Louise would renew their vows twice while living in Marietta. This would also be the time that Jordan would later claim to be sexually abused by David. She would have been 12 years old at the time of the abuse. She would later describe how he would have her take her pants off and sit on his lap 
and he would fondle her and kiss her on the mouth. In 2013, David's parents saw the kids for the last time as David and Louise completely cut off all external family permanently. From 2014 to 2018, neighbors would sometimes catch a glimpse of the chirping kids, always emaciated and looking pale from lack of light. Some would say they saw the kids marching all night long. No one would ever think about calling the police or social services. This would continue until the night Jordan Turpin, along with the Brave Sisters, decided to put a stop to the abuse. There's a lot that's not said about Louise and David Turpin, uh, the offenders. One thing that's not said here is that Louise was being sexually abused by her grandfather. Not only was she abused, but her sisters were also abused sexually. So what would happen is her mom, and her mom was also abused by her, by her father. Her grandfather was actually a, a Vietnam veteran, a war hero. He was. He had two Purple Hearts. Yeah, and the Bronze Star. He was a war hero, and he was systematically sexually abusing his daughter. And then after he had his granddaughters, he began sexually abusing all of his granddaughters. And the mother would take the daughters to him to be sexually abused. So she was supporting the sexual abuse and she was being paid for it. So the grandfather was paying her. Uh, that's how she was making money to support the family. So they think that part of the whole breakdown in the family was this whole sexual abuse that was happening with Louise for so many years. And I know that Elizabeth talks in some of her interviews, Elizabeth, her sister, her second sister, she had two sisters. The youngest one was uh, Teresa, but Elizabeth, remembers Louise protecting her. Yeah, like pushing her out of the way and taking the sexual assault for her, try to protect her sister until she moved out when she was 16. I don't think that prior abuse or prior treatment in somebody is a reason to abuse somebody else. Regardless, you know right from wrong. And even if it, you have a very warped sense of what love is or what taking care of somebody is, you still know the basics of treating somebody with dignity and respect. So I'll say that first. I know that this abuse came out after the story came out and everybody was very surprised in the family. You know, everybody in the family from his side to her side all were like, we can't believe this. They're a good Christian family. They had really good values. The kids were, from what they could tell, always well kept. The other thing, too, is that I find it odd that, and the sisters even say it, they all received the same treatment. And in fact, one of them had made a comment that she received the least. And the reason they said that is because she moved out and then they were stuck with the um, continued with the grandpa right, and continued to be abused. So they're like, of all of us, we wouldn't think she would be the one who would be continuing on that same type of abuse of somebody. So they all seem to be very shocked despite some of the little things that they had seen throughout the years. I, th I think scientifically, I think they've proven that typically when children are abused, they have a tendency to then abuse others, not because they, logically it makes sense. Like they're not like, well, I was abused, so I'm going to abuse, but it's more like a, a predilection to abuse because in that abuse, you lose a piece of yourself and that there's some kind of a psychological impact where you don't see what you're doing as even being wrong. And I'm not, I'm not justifying that what she did right. was right, but obviously I feel like it had a high probability of influencing how she would feel about her kids in the future. Just the fact that she would leave the baby crying and never touch the, touch the baby. That's not normal for a parent. Yeah. But then what about the dad? Because now you've got two people. 
and yeah. nothing came out about him being sexually abused. No, but it sounds to me like he was um, not present. Yeah. It sounded to me like he's never there, like he was always at work. Even in some of the interviews, I don't get a lot of information on the dad, like almost like, I don't know, like he wasn't really present. I had watched a video or heard an interview or something with Jennifer, and she was saying that her earliest memory was of her parents, and her dad was abusing her mom, and her mom was like yelling and like you know, that's that's the first thing that she's rem- that she remembered. So I don't know if he continued to abuse his wife, but he did in the beginning. Yeah. And then I also saw that she had been pulled out of school in third grade, and that their parents. So whenever they would go like on those little trips, that they would give them new clothes and stuff, and that they would tell them. For example, if somebody asks you what grade you're in, you say you're in this grade. Right. And they would like give them different things to say. And she said that that, that they would all be struggling, like trying to ask each other, like, oh, what grade am I supposed to be? Oh, <laughs> I'm 10 years old, uh, fifth grade. And yeah. along with the toys that or like they would buy like new toys and clothes and different things, but they wouldn't allow the kids to have any of that. And I don't really understand that because you spend the money on it but you like that's such a waste when you think about the psychology of control one of the things that you realize is that when you grow up and you grow up in a world where you don't have control when you become an adult you try to exercise control on other people because you didn't have it when you were growing up so you overuse it and so when they when they talk about the fact that they bought pies and they would put the pies out no one was allowed to eat it they talk about when, when Elizabeth says when she was staying there for the summer, the kids would come down and they would sit in front of their plate and they would look at their mom. And as soon as their mom gave them the nod, they were allowed to eat, but they weren't allowed to touch the food until she made them eat. That all sounds to me like control. Yeah, yeah, for uh, sure. And, and to be able to say, I can put this in front of you and even though you want it, I know you want it, I have the control over you to, for you not to touch it. Yeah. Um, so I feel like that was a little bit of the, the issue. But there was no reason for the house to be in the condition that it was because she had enough people to help clean it up. Like she didn't really have to do anything. She could just have them clean it up, but yeah. they, they, they didn't. But I also know that you had 13 people living in a really small amount of space and that's gotta be, I can't even imagine that. That's, that's gotta be crazy. Well, and not just that, but I think about, I was young and had a lot of kids. I didn't have 13 kids, but <laughs> I had a lot of kids And having kids, period, can be stressful. And definitely having kids young, so she was young, um, you miss out on some things that you experience compared to other people who have their childhood and go through all those normal experiences before they have children. So there's a point in time where one of her sisters talks about how they were kind of getting a little wild and Louise made a comment and said, "We're, we're sowing them wild oats, basically like doing the things that they didn't do when they were younger she left home at 16 and then had a child a few years later she really hadn't experienced anything not to mention that both of them came from very religious strict homes and having come from a very religious home i know that the restrictions that are placed on you because of those religious beliefs can be pretty overwhelming and those beliefs stick with you for a while so i know that um there was some talk about her religion But it sounds to me like Louise and David 
both fell out of their practicing religion very shortly after leaving home. One of the examples is Elizabeth says that she was really surprised when they had picked her up and they had stopped at a casino in Las Vegas and they both went in to, to gamble and they left the family sitting in the car overnight. And Elizabeth was one of the ones sitting in the car with the kids and she couldn't believe that they were going to gamble. So I, I feel she like, couldn't believe that they were going to gamble, but she thought it was perfectly fine that they left all the kids in the car overnight. Well, it's because of the religion. She was surprised that she wasn't living those values that she had grown up with, you know, so that she found that surprising. And she didn't know nothing about a casino. So she didn't like she was like, what are you guys doing all night? We were playing blackjack or whatever. Like, you know, I saw that they had a, even claimed to their family that they were done with their religion and that they kind of made their own religion by combining a bunch of their religions and once they had foreclosed that one house the house that had like the scratches and stuff there was also stuff written everywhere about the rapture and other things and jordan had said in one of the interviews that they would use like bible verses or things in the bible that they claimed would justify that what they were doing the abuse and stuff and that they were allowed to do that because i'm your parent and stuff and then kind of to go along with it, something that I just recently heard because I was listening to some of the kids' statements in front of their parents in court is that one child was being forgiving, saying that she was thankful that her parents taught her about God and whatnot. And I just can't help but think she probably has some weird view of that. And if she still views it that way, then she's going to live on going off of that instead of off what really is and another thing I wanted to bring up was with the homeschool that I thought was interesting is that um, whenever they pulled Jennifer out and they created their own homeschool system so you could find it or whoever would be looking into them was able to find it and they put the dad as the principal and like things like that so they were like running their own homeschool yeah yeah, yeah it's true I was homeschooled for a period of time and I didn't like it and I definitely can tell you that even in that, and I wasn't abused, but even in that setting, um, you're closed off, you're socially. And so as the years progressed, when homeschool started becoming more and more popular, they started offering things where you could participate on a basketball team combined with other kids also being homeschooled. Progressed throughout the years back when, it, you know, if they indeed were being homeschooled, which it doesn't seem like they were really schooled, honestly, very much. But what would have been available to them back then wouldn't have been very much. Well, first of all, you're talking about homeschooling, and we all know that Louise didn't finish school. She never graduated high school. Yeah, yeah. and she was the one that was yeah. homeschooling them. Yeah, so so she was very limited in her ability to actually teach her kids anything beyond maybe that third grade level where she pulled out where she pulled jennifer out um jessica was the one that made the statement that you're talking about um it was jessica she was the the third from the, being the oldest so she was like their oh, third child thanking them for yeah yeah i think that's important because i feel like the, the four oldest children that were adults had been with them the longest and i think that they were given a little bit more privileges than the younger ones and maybe were sustaining a majority of the abuse as well so I don't feel like the older ones were really getting as much abuse as the younger ones because the younger ones were, they talked about like in her statement, she was talking about, she was just trying to keep them out the sugar, not the caffeine, but we needed to get it for dad because dad had a car accident on the way to work and because he fell asleep. So yeah. I really feel like she was more brainwashed than anything. 
And she was also, I know you, we were talking about it earlier and you said she may have been one of the ones that was the disciplinarian. Right. She, she may have been one of the disciplinarians. Oh, yeah. Well, and psychologically, even for kids who are abducted, when you hear about Stockholm syndrome, where they develop a relationship with the person who has them, think about the fact that you know that this is your mom and your dad. So they're not automatically going to be like, I dislike you and I don't care about you. They're going to have feelings of love towards them, regardless of the treatment. But then it's going to be distorted. So hearing like when I heard her statement in court, it made me sad because I'm thinking here, this girl has been mistreated all these years and she's sticking up for the two people who did it. And they've been mistreating her brothers and sisters. Now there, I do know that it doesn't appear that they started the abuse with the first ones. Initially, it seems like the abuse started sometime at that first house in Fort Worth when they moved to Fort Worth. So that would be another reason, you know, like you were saying that they weren't being abused like the younger kids. And if she indeed was one of the disciplinarians, then she may feel a level of culpability in all of that as well. Yeah, it's possible. In the interview that they had together, Jennifer and Jordan, Jennifer said that when their parents would leave them in that trailer, that a couple of them would have to be the disciplinarians and that they would have to do the things like put their siblings in the dog kennels or whatever. And I saw somebody talking about that, like, somebody who was describing the case and they said that those people who were disciplining their siblings were probably worried if they didn't do that. Cause you could think like, well, why would they do that to their own siblings? They were probably afraid that they would get something from their parents if they didn't go with that. And the parents would give the older kids, like the trusted kids phones and stuff. And they were kind of more connected with reality a little bit, but all the siblings amongst each other would like teach each other things. Jordan had said in an interview that each of them went through their own abuse and none of them know each other. None of them know what each one of their other siblings went through. Like they all might have a view of they only went through this, but they could have gone through so much more. Like each sibling had their own thing and they don't even really know everything about each other yeah that's which true. is and and if you think about that when elizabeth was talking about you know them bringing down one child at a time to eat if one child at a time is being let out and abused or whatever the case may be it, yeah i can see where they don't even fully know what happened to each other during those time frames where they were out of each other's view i can say just me growing up with uh three siblings i don't know what my siblings went through growing up either you really just focus on yourself and focus on what you're going through and dealing with your own stuff. That makes sense to me. Yeah, you know? it makes sense to me too. And I'm pretty sure that there's some type of psychological thing there as well as far as being being a sibling to somebody who's been abused and wondering if you could have done could have done more to to protect them or more to you know like like make a difference even in in bad situations. So just like people bond in good situations, people bond in bad situations as well. And I think that the children's level of resiliency amongst each other is just incredible. The fact that they were able to to come together and teach each other things and try to encourage each other and help each other. I actually heard one of the sisters, um, Janetta, she's one of the few, you know, they tried to keep a lot of the younger ones out of the media and mentioning their names and things of that nature because of their ages. Janetta had posted something on TikTok saying that when you're depressed, that one of the things that she does is she looks at the things that she has to be grateful for and she's grateful for them. 
And you know, if you watch that TikTok and you don't know who she is, you think she's just another person on TikTok that's saying something motivational. Kudos to her. But when you know her story, it means so much more because you're like, you endured so much. And then here you are encouraging other people on how to deal with their depression. You know, I think it's pretty incredible. One thing that I thought about was the fact that the parents and Alicia was kind of alluding to this, but the parents would tell the children to be deceitful, which means they knew what they were doing was wrong. Cause I see them sitting in court and they're like, Oh, you know, we loved our children and we didn't want to, but you know, you're doing wrong because you're telling them to lie. Not just that. Something that I, I found completely weird is that. So when they did their sentencing and the, and some of the children were doing their victim impact statements in the courtroom, how the mom and the dad were responding And though they were visibly appearing like they were upset, I never saw any real tears. It's not easy unless you've been acting for a long time to like produce tears. And so it just seemed as hard as they were trying to make themselves appear to be emotional throughout all of that. I just didn't see it personally. You didn't buy the emotion? Yeah, I didn't buy it at all. I was listening to some of the stuff that dad said in court and- To add in a little bit, one of my teachers last year had said that a real apology does not include the words if or but. Yeah. And so I was kind of, I think about that all the time because I really believe in that. I believe in that when I listen to people apologize to me or just in general. Because if you say, I'm sorry if I hurt you, you're not really apologizing and acknowledging the fact that you hurt them. You're saying if or I'm sorry, but I didn't blah, 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 blah. You're, You're not, not taking really. responsibility. Yeah. And so I was thinking about that whenever I was listening to him apologize because he was like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cause them harm. If I caused them harm, then I didn't mean it. Like that kind of thing. He was using a lot of if. Like, you know what you did. There wasn't yeah. any if. He didn't even read his statement. He had his attorney read his statement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like yeah, a. Yeah. And then he made a comment that kind of stood out to me. He said, I'm proud of my four older kids who are going to complete college. But what about your younger kids who, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, why would yeah. you single them out? It's almost like they, I don't know. It, al- it almost felt like to me like the older kids were on a different level than the other kids. I wanted to kind of talk through the timeline because I think there's some things that kind of stand out. So they got married in 85. They had Jennifer in 1988. They moved to Fort Worth, Texas. Now, this is where they're saying the abuse began, was in Fort Worth, Texas. This would have been close to the time of where the oldest child, Jennifer, was pulled out of school um, in in the years around this time where they were um, in Fort Worth. And I'm not too sure what happened here because he was working for Lockheed Martin, which is a, a pretty good job. They had purchased that house and it ended up getting foreclosed on. So, and at the point... I don't know if it was before it got foreclosed on, but they moved and they were able to move into another house, also purchasing it, which is strange to me. But when they move into this house, then the abuse continued. And the first house that they were in in Fort Worth, the person who bought it, so it went into foreclosure. And a lot of times when homes go into foreclosure, the people who are there, typically it's because they it's a money issue. It's tied to, you know, to the fact that they couldn't pay. And so sometimes they'll kind of trash the house. So the house was purchased by somebody who, when he saw the inside of the house, he was disgusted, but he was like, 
and he took pictures and he kept them. So he had them years later when, when this all came out. So he was able to share those, but he said that when he walked in the house, he just assumed that it was foreclosed on the people got upset. They kind of trashed it. He said he didn't think that it was human feces everywhere and that all the stuff that he noticed in the house, that something was happening in that house, you know, that was kind of disturbing to him. Like but, the scratches on the wall and stuff. Yeah, like scratches on the back of the... They actually said they thought it was an animal. So they thought the like the feces was animal feces. They thought the scratches were from a dog in the house. They were never thinking that this was human feces and, you know, scratches from a human on the back of a door. Yeah. In the house that they were in in Rio Vista, which is probably one of the largest amount of times where they were exposed to the same amount of people for a period of time... This is where um, some of the neighbors had talked about when they up and left, which before they up and left, they moved out of the house and that's when they had gotten the trailer, which also at one point in time also got repossessed as well. But they said that when they went into the house, so they just were, I call them the not so nosy neighbors. And the reason that I call them that is because they talk how they don't want to be the nosy neighbor. But then as soon as the family left, they went and walked through their house. And even though they saw and the shape of the house, they still didn't do anything. Kind of came off to me as like they wanted to be nosy. <laughs> they just didn't want everybody else to know that they were being nosy. But they went into the house and they found dead dogs and cats. They found, and in fact, there was actually animals that were alive in there. There were some dogs that had that they heard in the house that when they opened up the door that like the dogs took off, but the dogs had been surviving off of like diapers. There was like piled up baby diapers and stuff in there. So the dog was like, tr they were trying to, to live off of whatever was in there, but there was dead animals in there. There was feces everywhere. They said that there was desks lined up. Like they were doing school. There was stuff written on the walls. There's, there's a couple pictures. Well, one picture in particular that they have of the wall where one of the kids you can see had drawn something on the wall and they kind of just up and left and left everything as it was. So they didn't remove anything, no food, no nothing. They found padlocks on all of the cabinets, on the refrigerator, on all of the doors. They found just the house was unlivable. And then the trailer ended I up- I wouldn't find that surprising. What do you mean? Padlocks on the refrigerator, padlocks on the, on on the cabinets. On all the cabinets? Yeah, I wouldn't find that surprising. If, if you had that many children and that many small kids mm -hmm. that you would lock things up. Like you think about trying to keep kids out of stuff- to me, that's not abnormal per se. It's like um, baby proofing. Yeah, it's like baby proofing, especially if your kids are underdeveloped and they're acting like younger kids, like they don't have any type of uh, of control. And I say that because if you listen to uh, Jessica's statement when she was saying, "I was my mom wanted to keep the kids away from the from the sugar," if, if they're seeking that out, obviously they're starving. But so. it sounds like she's repeating, like to me, it sounds like she's repeating whatever she was told. And Maybe. It's, it's also just the mom there and 13 kids. You can't keep an eye on every single one of those kids and what they're getting into and what they're doing. I know that on that property, there was a brick building that they lived in. Right. And that, that was the house. Yeah, the house. That and that it was in such a, such bad shape that they then moved into the trailer. I guess it, that was in such bad shape that they moved the kids out into a, their own a trailer. So I think they just kept having kids and that was... I'm going to tell you something crazy. The shape of the house that was in Rio Vista, the pictures that they showed, the guy who ended up buying the property, him, and which I guess his mother lived somewhere in the vicinity of that area. She knew the Turpins and had heard like the story of the oldest daughter at one point trying to get away and being taken back home because the person thought she was mentally challenged. And so therefore just, it didn't raise a flag to the person, 
um, but they've never been able to validate that story. 911 was never called in that particular case. I was able to, to get the truth on that story, and she was observed by the neighbor, the one that said that she had talked to the girls about wearing the gloves, where she thought the girls mm. were wearing gloves. She saw her getting into a car and hitchhiking a ride into town. So that's the so, same neighbor that went into the house later. Yeah, the, the nosy, yeah. the non-nosy. The not-so-nosy not yeah. <laughs> She had went into town, tried to, to get a job as a, like a waitress or something like that, and tried to find out what she needed to do to get an apartment. And then after a day of being gone, she came back. She kept thinking about the children and what would become of them and what they were going to go through, and she yeah. wasn't there to protect them. Yeah. yeah. So she came back. The shape that that house was in when I was younger, I knew somebody that had a house that looked like that in the inside, and they didn't abuse their kids, but they didn't have a lot of money. And now when I say the shape of that house, I'm not talking about the feces or the padlocks or the ropes and chains on the beds. I'm talking about like when you see the the pictures of piles and piles of stuff everywhere like it's a sickness trash. yeah it's a sickness yeah. that's a it's a mental health issue and you know something else that i thought was very telling as well was the daughter of the not so nosy neighbors when she went cuz she would play with the older three Jennifer, Jessica and Joshua and when she would go over there she said one day she went over there and it kind of hurt her feelings cuz her mom was like they can't play with you anymore and I don't know at what point this is because I know that the mom, at one point, her mom had had a conversation with the kids and the kids, when she asked their names, they said, we're not allowed to tell our names, but if you listen to us, you might figure it out, you know? So they were scared to even, you know, give their names up. So I'm not sure at what point where the mom decided that she wasn't going to allow for her children to play with the little girl anymore. But she said that when she would go to the door, because she went there several times, she said she would knock for like a long time. Nobody would come to the door, but she said she would always see the baby in a playpen, whoever was the baby at that point in time, in front of one of the windows. She thought it was odd that nobody was coming to the door, but there was always a baby in the playpen. But if you think about it, when you look at how much debt they were in when they filed for bankruptcy, online shopping was not really a thing back then. So... In order for her to have racked up $90,000 worth of credit card debt, she had to have left that house a lot. So I'm pretty sure that they were alone a lot. Yeah. And not only that, but you had the 18, one of the girls was like almost 18 at the time. Jessica would have been 18. So she wouldn't have really been leaving them alone. She would have been leaving them under the care of one of the older children. Yeah. Yeah. One point in about 2001, Joy Turpin, who was one of the daughters, she had been bit by a dog in the face that required stitches. And so there's two separate incidences that they have logged of um, the sheriff's department responding to their home in Rio Vista. And that was one of them. Um, the other one had to do with a pig. I couldn't find anything that talked about them having pigs, but it had something to do with the pig causing some type of damage, getting out and causing some type of damage. But I don't think that the pig was theirs. But those are the only two incidents where they were able to say like, they responded there or had anything to do with the Turpins or were aware of anything was that something that I found really strange with the dates because we created a timeline was that in their bankruptcy, there's some different bills that are listed medical bills and they don't line up with the births and they don't line up with any information that's come out as far as things that have happened with the kids. And obviously that it would be against HIPAA to even try to find any of that stuff out anyways. But what I find odd about that is that there's some gaps in time where they weren't having kids because they were having kids pretty consecutively. 
I kind of wonder if there was any kids that passed away, if they had any kids that just kind of strange. And then when it comes to the kids, you know, possibly being treated a little bit different, I know that when they put the kids in the trailer, the two younger kids stayed with them. So obviously the two younger kids were being treated different than the older kids that were all placed into the trailer. They left Rio Vista in 2010 and that property was foreclosed on and only $40,000 and they had like 30 some acres of land. They were actually getting paid monthly for um, mineral rights for a rig that was on their land. So it just seems kind of odd. You think he was making fairly decent amount of money. Just tragic that 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 happened. But when they moved to California, I know Alicia had mentioned earlier. So they moved to California in 2010. They were renting that initial house that they moved into. And it was during this time. So in April of 2010, that double wide motorhome was repossessed. That's the one that they had pulled onto the land. And that was despite the fact that they had received over $10,000 that year in royalties for those mineral rights. Then in 2011 is when David registered the school. It was called the Sandcastle Day School. And you'll see some things online. There's been some conspiracy theorists that talk about there being some type of occult type thing and relating this Sandcastle name to some of those things. I don't know how much weight that has, so I didn't really want to include that. I just kind of wanted to mention it. But then in August, so August of 2011, and remind you, they moved in 2010. They were first renting, and they had the the property foreclosed on that was in Texas, and they also had the mobile home that was repossessed. In 2011, they filed bankruptcy. And on that bankruptcy, they had two 401ks. He had one from Lockheed Martin for 81K, he had Northrop Grumman for almost 6K. They had three vehicles. And I'm wondering, what did they need three vehicles for? But they had a van. They had a Ford Focus and a Ford Mustang. Then they had just numerous other bills to include. They had, which I found this interesting. They had um, one of their bills was a pest control bill that was like $400, something around that amount. And then other than that, it was pretty much all credit card debt, those repossessions. Something that kind of stuck out in that, and you know, this could just be a matter of not caring what you're putting on the paperwork, but a couple people had mentioned how they had misrecorded the sexes and ages of the children on that bankruptcy filing. I don't know what the purpose would be of that, honestly. I think it would have looked better if they would have put all the kids on there and all the correct ages, so I don't know that that was really carried any, any weight for anything. About 2013, this was the second time David and Luis went to Las Vegas and and did um, a renewal of their vows. And then they did again in about 2015. And it was the same person. He was actually very surprised when the news broke as well. It was the same person who did the vow renewal every time. So each time that they went there, you know, he saw the family and saw the kids and, you know, was around them for not a long time, but, you know, a little bit of time felt like they were a nice family. In court after... The arrests were made when they were trying to figure out how they were going to go about building this case and what time frame they were going to use. The defense for David and Louise said that what happened in Texas shouldn't be used because it was outside the jurisdiction of California because California is the home that they were living in at the time that this all came out. When everything you know played out and they were sentenced and everything, the dates that it went through were between um, 2010 and 2018. So there is some time that they didn't include. 
Now, I know that they were going back and they were doing some DNA testing to see if any they had lost any children or any children had died in between the time that they started having kids until present. So I know there was some conversation about that. Uh, there, there was some DNA testing that was going on to determine if they had lost any children. And I don't know, you know, at this point in time with the amount of stuff, and, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but um, with the amount of stuff that came out, as far as evidence that that would have even made a difference at that point in time, you know, with what they were already sentenced, other than them being slapped with a murder charge, they're maxed out on pretty much what they can be sentenced for. So at this point, anything extra is just extra. It's just extra. They got 25 to life, I think, which it was the same charge you would get for first degree murder. Right. And so I heard one of the videos or interviews I was listening to, somebody said that they kind of got what they deserved because they got the equivalent to like murder like you took away their childhood and stuff yeah for sure in california they have a law for parole parole for elderly that once you hit a certain age you're automatically eligible for parole not that it's granted right away but you're eligible it makes them eligible for under 25 i think it's like 22 so they'll be eligible for parole like 22 years based on their age they're both eligible for parole 2033 so 10 years from now are you serious? Yeah. Wow. That's Believe. crazy. That's not good. Because then they would have only been in prison for like... Are you sure about that date? I'm positive. Yeah, 2033. Denied. <laughs> <laughs> District Attorney Mike Hestron was born in Coachella Valley. He was sworn into office in 2015 and currently lives in Marietta, California, where the Turpins had lived from 2010 to about 2014. The Turpins had already made Riverside County their home for over a year at the time of his accession to the role of District Attorney. Mike had completed his undergraduate studies in history at the University of Arizona in 1993. Around that time, the Turpins were bringing their third child into the world. He would spend a year living in Mexico with family and working as a reporter for a small newspaper before returning back to the U.S. to finish his studies in law. He received his graduate degree in Latin American Studies and a law degree from Stanford, graduating in 1997, around the same time that Louise had given birth to her fifth child and also around the same time where Jennifer was pulled out of school permanently. Mike would spend almost 20 years as a line prosecutor for Riverside County, completing more than 100 jury trials. He served as a trial team leader for the DA's Sexual Assault and Child Abuse Unit, where he prosecuted those who target and abuse children. For most of his, the last 10 years before taking office, he worked in the homicide unit where he conducted more than 40 murder trials, including seven death penalty cases. Mike would be recognized multiple times during his career before becoming the district attorney. In 2003 and 2005 and again in 2010, he was named Countywide Prosecutor of the Year for Riverside County. In 2008, Mike was also selected by the Daily Journal as one of California's top 20 lawyers under 40. In 2009, the California District Attorney Investigators Association honored Hestron as a statewide prosecutor of the year. In 2010, the California District Attorneys Association recognized him as California's Outstanding Prosecutor of the Year. In June 2018, a few months before the Turpin case would become global news, Mike would be reelected as the DA against Laura Gressley. His campaign was run on updating technology, reimagining our approach to investigations, 
vigorous prosecution of serious and violent felons, crime prevention and rehabilitation efforts, state-of-the-art victim support services, and informing our community members regarding important public safety matters. And when we when we speak about the case and the case going to trial, this was kind of the case that put Mike Hestrin on the map as a district attorney. Uh, and he had his uh, his two deputy district attorneys that were prosecuting the case, and and they really did a good job of of investigating it and, and bringing it to trial. Um, one thing that he says he regrets is he says he regrets not putting the kids on the stand. Not putting the kids on yeah. the stand? Why? I don't know why. That's a good question for Mike. <laughs> Maybe we'll get him <laughs> as a guest one day. But it sounds like he feels like it would have been more of an impact to hear from the kids in terms of their abuse and in terms of what was happening with them. He says if he had to do it all over again, that's one thing that he would change. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, they still ended up getting what what they needed to get, so I don't know that that would, would be the best thing. You know, psychologically, they say that when kids have gone through things like that, because then they would, their parents are going to be in the room, so now yeah. they're on the stand with their parents in the room, and that's not very comfortable. Part of the agreement for the plea was so the kids wouldn't have to testify about what they did. Because I'm, I'm sure there are things that happened that the kids haven't told. Yeah, the I'm kids sure. haven't had a chance to say yet. Yeah, and I'm sure they're they're still digging through the hundreds of journals that they pulled out of the house, you know, that they had. For the case, the two offenders were, of course, the husband David Allen Turpin and Louise Ann Turpin. For evidence, there was three children shackled and chained to beds. Um, two female children and one male child. Children's clothing stained with feces. Hundreds of journals were damning real-time documented evidence and abuse. And medical records from the Riverside Health System, Younger Turpin Children, and Corona Regional Medical Center for the Older Turpin Children. They had severe malnourishment, severe protein caloric malnutrition, and they were an average of 32 pounds, which is very underweight, and one of the adult children were... 47 pounds hmm. that's really crazy i feel like you they had to be short too because how could you only weigh that much yeah without it's, being dead yeah it's almost like a bag of groceries yeah i'm surprised they didn't die one child was so skinny that her upper arm was equivalent to a four-month-old they also had social dwarfism which is dented growth damage due to malnutrition, severe skeletal abnormalities, abnormal gait, cachexia, which is a muscle wasting syndrome, liver damage, numbness and weakness in extremities, low cognition. 17-year-old Jordan Turpin actually had the IQ of a first grader. They had speech impediment and pale skin because they weren't in the sun. For victims, there was 12 victims. There was 13 children in the home, but no signs of abuse could be detected in the youngest child. As for the motive, to date, no real motive has been identified. There has been discussion of possible religious-based thinking, a risky lifestyle, being overwhelmed with the number of children and even behavior as a result of past trauma from Louise Ann Turpin. And as for the sentence, on April 19th, 2019, David and Louise Turpin were sentenced for their crimes. 
They had 14 felony counts each, including counts of torture, false imprisonment, cruelty to dependent adults, and child endangerment between January 1st, 2010 and January 14th, 2018. When they were going through court, some things that that really kind of um, stuck out to me, you could definitely tell that as detectives were giving statements and stuff that it was very emotional for them. They had talked about how this is the worst case in the U.S. that anybody had ever seen as far as abuse. So this was like a first time for everybody. I know that even researching this case for me was emotional. So I can only imagine when you're physically seeing something and you're speaking to the children, how emotional that had to be for all the people that were involved that worked on this case. And I definitely think that they did an amazing job in prosecuting this case because they were able to get the sentence that they did. One of the things that they said was that the youngest child who looked to be very well fed and taken care of, they couldn't really find anything with the youngest child. And obviously the youngest child couldn't speak where they could charge them with anything as far as that youngest child went. All of their charges were really based on on 12 of the children, not all 13 of them. Yeah, that's good to know. As we're getting to the close of this case, it's not over. Oh, no. This case isn't over. I know right now the court proceedings are still sealed, and they probably won't be unsealed until after the youngest child is over the age of 18. So all the children are over 18 except for two, one's 17, and the other one's like eight or nine years old. Okay, gotcha. It's going to take us a few years to really get the understanding of what else is closed and then to understand what's in those journals that they haven't shared yet. That yeah. had to be very sad as well because they found hundreds of journals, which the, you know, the investigators were saying, like, of all the things they did to them, like, what a dumb thing to give them journals because it's the first case of its kind where it's documented real time. Like, what was happening. What was happening. So yeah. that was huge evidence for the prosecution. Yeah. Everybody who knew even just part of the case was like, I don't know how the defense is going to try to argue against what they had. So from the picture, like the picture that Jordan took, I've heard some things where they said that only the son was tied or chained to the bed when they entered the home. There was a pretty large gap of time before the mom and dad came to the door. So I don't know if maybe they went in there and, and unchained the daughters. I'm not sure. Yeah, but they actually said that the that they unchained the daughters. And that's why they when they answered the door, they were both out of breath. They were both huffing uh, and puffing. I'm surprised that they didn't read the children's journals or said, you can't write about this or that. And they didn't read them yeah. and like find things and like got rid of it or yeah. something. Jordan, in part of the 911 call, when she called, when she was talking to the 911 operator, she said she didn't know much about her mom, that her mom didn't like them, and she never spent time with them. So I think probably the mom and dad just kind of did their own thing and weren't really concerned with what the kids were doing. And were more so doing things like how parents do with tablets now, where like the tablet keeps their attention. I think that might have been what their thought was with the journals is that can kind of keep them busy so that I'm not being annoyed or I'm not being, you know, whatever the case may be. Not only that, but I don't think that they really thought they were doing anything illegal because they were so surprised when the cops showed up. They were like, what are you doing here? Well, the dad, when he answered the door, the first thing he said was, do you have a warrant? And they said, we don't need a warrant. And so they just walked in. They, They did ask him if he had firearms. He said he did, that they were locked up. They checked him, physically checked him and then had them stand off to the side the mom, they said, looked like, why are you even here? Like, she was yeah. confused. Thought, like, these are my children. I can do whatever, whatever I want, I want. Yeah. yeah. People think that with pets, too. Yeah. But you can even get in trouble for, like, doing stuff with your pet. Yeah, yeah. 
Yep. Absolutely. I've heard a lot of people talk about different things. Like I know that there was one neighbor who had said that late at night, he said he would get home between like maybe 12 a.m., 3 a.m., somewhere around that time. And he said he would see the kids marching in a single file line for hours. Yeah. And so there's multiple things that have come out or like one neighbor said, I saw two of the older boys digging in the trash. Or another neighbor said, I tried to speak to them and they acted like by not saying anything, they were invisible. So multiple instances. I do that. (laughs) There's multiple instances in both Texas and in California where there's been opportunity for neighbors to raise a flag and they didn't. One guy talked about how they were skinny and he's like super skinny, not like not like in shape skinny, but like like not healthy skinny. It's a hard thing to get involved. It's not an easy thing for most people. For most people, it takes a lot for someone to get involved in someone else's life. And I can only think of maybe one or two instances where I might, because I know people raise their kids differently. And what I would consider abuse, you may consider something like slapping someone on the side of the head abuse, but I don't see that as abusive in the context of of it happening. You know, like if I was at Walmart and someone smacked their kid upside the head, I'd be like, well, he probably wasn't behaving. He probably deserved that. But I I think it's hard. That might actually be abuse. (laughs) It it might. It it totally might, right? But I think sometimes it's hard. I think it's hard for people sometimes to know when to get involved and to understand when they should get involved versus when they shouldn't. I think people don't want to be known as that nosy neighbor and they don't want to raise a flag and then it be nothing and then be that neighbor. Like they don't want to be that person. There's also the bystander effect too, meaning someone else is going to call. Someone else is going to see this as well and maybe call the authorities or maybe call and tell somebody. But you know what I'd say to that? What? Picture it being being one of your loved ones. Yeah. Yeah. And would that change what you're willing to do? Because. that It's tough. It's tough. And I know with the nosy, not so nosy neighbors, I feel like they had enough information they should have done something. They should have notified someone. They should have They should have done something. They should have pushed it a little bit more. Um, not only that, but think about the person who owned the house in Marietta where they lived at for a couple of years. And think about when they went to that house and they saw the condition of that house. It had to be horrible. Well, you know what's interesting is that there's been no photos that have come out. From that house? From that house. Yeah. So it makes me wonder, and that was a house where they rented. They didn't purchase that house. Right. But the gentleman or the couple who were renting the house to them what their thoughts were when they went into yeah. the house. I'm pretty sure it was in the same condition as all the other Absolutely. houses. They, they were there in. for years. Yeah. So so you have to think they came in and were like, holy crap, they really tore our house up yeah. and they're not getting their deposit back, right? Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but then but then, what do they do in terms of looking at it and going, oh, there's something else going on here. There's a problem. The the ones that, I, that really bothers me is the ones in Texas. Yeah. And the reason is because they were around them for the longest amount of time and they saw so much. It was the same neighbor that's talking about how they saw her get into a vehicle. It's the same neighbor that went into the home and saw everything. It's the same neighbor who asked the kids their names. It's the same neighbor who saw that their hands looked like they had gloves on. The daughter told her, only to the wrist or you're waste- wasting water. Like, there's so many things that happened when they lived by those neighbors that were all red flags and that together is like a wildfire and... They still didn't do anything like the final thing was the all the things leading up were red flag, red flag, red flag. And then the moment that they went into the house and saw everything that they saw in the house, like that was like a wildfire. So I as far as those neighbors go, I'm like, I feel like they failed the kids. I really do. 
One thing that we didn't talk about is that once the kids were taken away, so the kids were kept in the hospital for two months. There was 50 different agencies that were working while the case was going on from a psychological perspective, from a medical perspective, different specialists that had to come in because of the amount of malnutrition that they had. Um, how Alicia talked about earlier, like the, the different con conditions. There was even a heart condition as well with at least one of the children. And so the, those are all pretty serious things. The older kids, so, you know, this this case is, was really different compared to any other case. The older children, because of, they, I want to say that five of them were adults at the time. And so the ones that were adults at the time, typically you're not going to be in foster care because you're an adult. So they had to get adult social services involved in order to try to get them services and get them like placed on welfare to get assistance in order for them to be able to live somewhere and start to to learn how to be adults to even function in society. And so the children were placed in a foster care home and the home that they were placed into, they currently have a lawsuit going for abuse where they were sexually and physically abused. There was a mom, a dad and a daughter all in that same house, an adult daughter. One of the reasons that they're, that they've filed the lawsuit isn't even about the money. It's about the fact that once again, they were failed, but the organization that placed them into that foster home, they said knew that that family had already had instances where they had abused other children. And so their care was not managed properly and then yeah. being placed was not managed properly. And that that organization, knowing the history of that family should never not have just placed them there, but any kid there. Yeah. That's why I say that I feel like this case is not over because we still need to discuss like the future, whatever's not revealed already from the case misappropriation of the funds that the kids received that they haven't got any money for how much money was that um i want to say it's um like some somewhere like half a million to six hundred thousand dollars that they're supposed to be that the donors had donated to the to the program that they never saw any money from and where they've put money into into, into trusts that are not giving them any money at all so they're asking for resources and they're not being given those resources. It, they put them in a, a, what they call that a conservatorship. So someone else is is handling their financial situation, but who is that person to them? I do know that they have a separate attorney for the adults than they do for the children. So for the younger kids, they have one attorney and then for the older kids, they have another attorney. And I'm not sure if the attorney that's handling either of these cases, the abuse case or the money case is either of those. But um, I did read some things that talked about in giving kids money that have been through what they've been through and that haven't been in society, aren't moving like regular adults at that point in time, that there was a concern with giving them money because one, it would eliminate whatever aid they were getting from the state, depending on how much money they gave them. So there's been some different things that they said they encountered that weren't typical things to encounter for children that they've dealt with in the past, again, because they're dealing with adults. So, you know, if you're on welfare, you can't receive over a certain amount of money. So I've heard some things where they said that was a challenge. But at the end of the day, these kids are, you know, one of them asked for a bike. You could have given them a bike, you know, to get around. There, there's a lot of different things that that money could have gone towards schooling, towards um, housing. Like there's just so many ways that those kids should have been helped. And it's a shame that 
um, once again that they've been failed. So that sounds like an excuse to me to say, oh, because of because of social services, we can't give these kids what they need because social services shouldn't stop you from getting a vehicle. It shouldn't stop you from getting an apartment. It shouldn't stop you from none of that should have stopped you from from those things. I, I don't know. I just feel like the system's broke and it, it didn't work in their favor. It didn't help their situation. So I do want to say that as of today, that a lot of the kids have chosen not to be out in the public eye and whatnot. I do know that Jordan for a while was trying to raise money for the family because they weren't getting money. And recently she signed a modeling contract. So um, she'll start obviously receiving money. Um, I've also heard that she's got people managing her social media now as well, helping her to monetize. So um, that's great. Jennifer, I believe is a phlebotomist. And I know that of the three that I see the most are Jennifer, Janetta and, and Jordan they keep in touch pretty regularly and you can see some of the other sisters and possibly the brothers on some of their social medias, but definitely they're from how it appears on the outside looking in, it looks like they're progressing and that they're becoming strong, beautiful adults, which I think is great. So lessons learned, recognize and report the signs of child abuse. Um, I think we've heard so much in this case that we can learn from and not being the not so nosy neighbor. You know, when you see red signs, you know, you can call and request for a welfare check. That's not just for elderly people. That's for anybody. So if you think something's happening, you can call and anonymously say, hey, can you go do, you know, a welfare check? This is why or this is what I've noticed. And if it's nothing, it's nothing. And then also, you never know what somebody's going through behind closed doors. You know, that goes for how people post their lives to be on on Facebook and all those things. You know, seeing seeing a kid in school, there was a kid who went to school with Jennifer that talked about, and we'll, we'll have this on our Patreon, but there's a, a message that he wrote when the case broke because he knew Jessica in that grade, and she was like the little girl with the cooties. And so he was saying that there's something we can learn from that and basically saying, like, you don't know who that person is or what they're experiencing. And so not to treat them badly. So call to action. Don't be that neighbor. Recognize and report signs of child abuse. And lastly, treat everybody with dignity and respect always. So don't ever assume that they're the stinky skinny bones. She turned out to be very, very, very courageous person. It's sad to me that they've been felled on so many different levels, but great that, that they are where they are today. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate to contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. 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 Bye.